Well, we were, we were uh, delighted to baptize 79 people uh, that wonderful night, and uh, it was uh, certainly a high point. So uh, welcome to Bethel Church today, and um, it is Student uh, Highlight Sunday, and so we have young people that are serving at the doors and serving in hospitality. I myself am wearing some Verge swag this morning. Uh, to promote our student ministry and to really encourage, especially parents, if you have uh, students, middle school, high school students, uh, I want to encourage you to have them a part of our Verge student ministry. There's a table in the commons. You can go there and ask any questions or contact the church. We would be delighted to um, uh, point you and your young people to uh, a community of young people following Jesus and for them to be encouraged in that. So, uh, student Takeover, Student Encouragement Sunday. I also am greeting the campuses. We're all joining here together today, and I'm privileged today to talk with you about bottom lines of Bethel Church. You're like, wait, I thought we were doing a series called Bottom Lines of the Bible, and indeed we have all summer been doing that. Uh, but this Sunday, we are going to talk about bottom lines of Bethel Church. Why are we doing that? Because every church has a culture. Every home has a culture. Uh, every place of work has a culture. This church has a culture. And there are certain bottom lines for our church that over the years have shaped who we are. And these are things that need to be reinforced and need to be repeated. And also for uh, this to, I think, uh, share with people that are new to our church, like, who is this church? And what maybe makes us unique or special, uh, and for you to decide whether this is a place that you would like to be or, or not. Now, none of the things I'm going to talk about today have we arrived in any of them. We are, uh, these are ideals, these are things that we aspire to, and the fact that we have not arrived there is great job security for me. You know, being a pastor is kind of like, uh, you know, uh, being a funeral home director. It's got great job security because people are always dying, and in the church, nobody, uh, nobody has fully arrived yet. And so there is a lot of work yet to be done, but we have progressed a long ways in, in these regards, and uh, we should rejoice in that, even as we acknowledge that we are works in progress this church is a work in progress, led by pastors who are a work in progress, pastoring people who are a work in progress, and uh, none of us have arrived. I love this description of the church in 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now these are uh, verses that are loaded down with theological truth, Old Testament imagery, all of that. But as far as just a vivid description of what the church is, that's a hard one to beat. And it holds out there this uh, glorious picture of the church of Jesus Christ, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, called into a world of darkness to summon people out of that darkness into the light. How? By declaring the excellencies of him, Jesus Christ. 
Now, does it always feel this way? Does every experience in a local church sort of feel like that First Peter 2? And if you've been around any church or our church for any amount of time, you know the answer to that is no. It does not. Sometimes, maybe even often, but every local church is a beautiful mess. A beautiful mess. This church is a beautiful mess. The more you're around here, the more you're going to see beauty, and the more you're around here, the more you're going to see mess, because we are a collection of sinners. I love the beautiful mess that we call Bethel Church. I do. I love this church. I love you. And today I want to tell our story and describe some of the bottom line kind of guiding principles that have shaped who we are as a church over these many years. Again, uh, as I talk about them, we fall short of these aspirations, but by having them before us, it helps to, for us to aspire to them and to strive for them and to keep them uh, before you. And if you are new here, I hope that what I share today intrigues you a little and makes you think, you know, if they're even on this path, maybe this is a place uh, that God might bless us by joining. And indeed, I hope that he, that he will lead you to do that. Okay, so I want to start by just talking about the story of our church, or the, as I'm calling it, the story so far. God is continuing to write his story here in our, in our church. I was asked this week, so what's the story of your church? And the story of our church goes back many, many years. Uh, we go back into the 1930s. Our church began as a Bible study in South Gary, and that Bible study became a church, and that church moved in 1969 to Merrillville, and for 30 years uh, established itself there, and it grew. There were faithful pastors there over the years, including my predecessor, Marv Troyer, who I honor with this memory right now. And over those years, good years of ministry, God established uh, our church. Now, while not more important years, the years I'm more familiar with are the years that I have been here, which is since 1997. And I remember 23 years ago, almost exactly, maybe even this Sunday, our church voted, this smaller church voted and said, we are going to relocate this church, we're going to build a new ministry facility, and that new ministry facility was going to be in Crown Point. And so for 72 Sundays, we met at Maryville High School, set up, tear down, set up, tear down, set up, tear down, while this facility was being uh, constructed. And we moved in with great joy in May of 2000. A week after we moved out, we discovered that our general contractor had uh, defrauded us almost a million dollars. Yay, we're in. Oh, no. But this church stepped up and admirably... Um, compensated contractors, which added uh, to the debt expected, certainly, a debt, by the way, which we paid off this past January, and so for the last seven months, we've been debt-free. So praise God for that. But the last 20 years here in, uh, in Crown Point have been years of incredible fruit-bearing uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, over these years, we have done tremendous modifications of ministry, and we've done new things. We established elders 
here as leaders of the church. We became a non-denominational church years ago. We pursued missional outreaches of many kinds. I don't have time to get into all of that. Uh, nine years ago, we became a, a, a two-location church, and then we became a three-location church, and then a four-location church, and presently we are a five-location church. Each of them with their own elders and deacons and pastors and staff, we've expanded our global missions outreach in exciting ways. And we have baptized a lot of people. I got thinking about how many, and I don't even really know the number, uh, but over the years, a lot of people. And we have added many, many ministries, and we have pointed literally thousands of people to hope in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior in this life and in the next. We believe he is the way, the truth, and the life. That meaning in life, in this life, and, and eternal life comes through a relationship by faith with Jesus Christ and him alone. Now, how and why has all of this happened? I stand before you to tell you, I don't really know. Like, it's, it's a surprise to me. Um, but it is marvelous in our sight. A surprise because... Uh, you know, from my perspective, Catbird Seat, senior pastor, I see a lot of weakness in the church, and I see problems and troubles and challenges, and I mean, it's been just year after year of that, and uh, I see weakness in me, and I think of failures that I have done over these years of pastoring and mistakes on many different levels, and I look at the congregation, and I kind of ponder, like, how and why has God done this? And I believe that the bottom lines of Bethel Church have fashioned and formed us into a congregation that has very much contributed to the scale and scope of our church. And today, I want to just talk about some of them. This is not an exhaustive list. If you come up to me after the service, what about that? You should have said something about that. I'm like, okay, I probably should have, but I only get a certain amount of time. So this is not an exhaustive list. But it is uh, the ones that I would like to highlight on this particular Sunday. So here we go, okay? Here we go. Number one, the Bible is the bottom line for us. Okay? The Bible is the bottom line for us. Here is how our doctrinal statement, our church doctrinal statement says it. God's word is true, sufficient, trustworthy, enduring, and complete. It contains all we need to know to receive salvation, obey God perfectly, and trust him completely. Therefore, the Bible is the final authority in all that it says. It must be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. I like that. Okay? I like that a lot. And indeed, in the DNA of our church, that doctrinal truth applied in the day-to-day and -day, the week-to-week -week of our congregation really is the lifeblood of our, of our church. And this assumes that all of us agree on a couple of core things about the Bible. Amongst them, number one, is the authority of God's Word. This means that it is the final authority for us. You have an opinion, I got opinion, you got to think, I think this, you think that. In the end, what do we do? We say, what does the Bible say about this and how can we faithfully apply it? And whatever it says and however it is faithfully applied, that's what we're going to do. Can we agree to that? 
That's the mojo of our, of our church. The Bible is the bottom line. We are a Bible-believing, Bible-trusting, Bible-preaching church. And it is the authority over our congregation. And secondly is the sufficiency of Scripture. And the sufficiency of Scripture, which is hard to say, <laughs> is uh, it means that it's not the Bible plus something else. Okay, it's not the Bible plus tradition. Many ancient churches approach things that way. The Bible plus tradition. It's not the Bible plus scientific method. It's not the Bible plus current philosophical opinions. It is, it is the Bible and the Bible alone. The Reformers nicely summarized it with this Latin phrase, sola scriptura, scripture alone. That's us. Now this has tons of implications in all kinds of categories of, of church ministry. I'll just give you a couple. So for one example, we have a very active pastoral min, uh, counseling ministry here. Many, many people uh, receive counsel on all kinds of different levels. What kind of counseling are you going to receive from this church? You're going to receive biblical counseling. You're going to come with whatever challenge is, and our first instinct is to say, what, does, what has God said in his word, and how can we faithfully apply this to the challenge that you're facing? We practice biblical counseling. For many years, uh, we have had the Bible Project as the curriculum for our children. What are our children being taught as they are participating in the ministries of our church? They are being taught the Bible. They are being taught the story and the narrative of the Bible. We want our young people to know and apply the Bible. Here it is, uh, Student uh, Highlight Sunday, and what are, what, are, what are Verge kids getting, okay? They're getting the Bible. They're getting fun, they're getting friendship, they're getting crazy things, they're getting mission strips, they're getting this, that, and the other. But in the end, they are getting the Bible. They are hearing what God says. This is what young people need, and their parents as well. Amen, parents? Okay. Or maybe I should ask the young people, don't you think your parents need more Bible? And the young people said, okay. Our Sunday services very much revolve around the Bible here. Perhaps you've not thought of it this way, but we publicly read scripture in our corporate gatherings. We provide ample time for the exposition of God's word in our corporate gatherings. You might think, oh, all churches do that. No, they don't. No, they don't, okay? But we do here. We do here, and that is going to uh, continue. Now, you may say, is this a new direction for you? Like, you know, the exposition of God's word and sermons that come from the Bible. Is this sort of a new thing for you? Because actually, expositional preaching the last probably 10 years has become kind of popular. You know, people that weren't doing it are kind of doing it now because uh, personally, I think that it's the best way to do it, and I'm for that. But this is not a new direction for us. And to give you an idea of how it's not a new direction for us, I, uh, I went back and I, I looked at the years that I have been here and the book studies that we have done verse by verse over the years. And here is a list of them. I'm not going to read all of them, uh, but that's 24 years of expositional preaching at Bethel Church is represented right there. Most uh, recently, if I go down here, Romans. 
three and a half years doing that. Praise God for that series. So to ask the question, what does the teaching schedule look like in a church that has a high view of Scripture? I think it looks like that. So if you want to hear the Bible, you keep coming, because that's what you're going to get here. The preaching of God's word, because the Bible is the bottom line for us. And that is bottom line number one. Number two, the gospel is the only hope for the world and for Northwest Indiana. The gospel is the only hope for the world and Northwest Indiana. Now, I bring this up because it is so easy in the course of living life to lose sight of the fact that everybody is going to live and die and that everybody is going to experience eternity in one of two spaces and places. It is either with God, with forgiveness of sins and eternal life, or it is under the wrath of God and the judgment of God in a place called hell. There's no third option. There's no sort of in-between. Hebrews says that it's appointed unto a man to, to live once and then judgment. And all of us, this is the eternity, this is the destiny that all of us face. And over time, it is so easy for the urgency of the gospel and the urgency of the message of the gospel, the one saving message that men and women, boys and girls need to hear to sort of slip away in terms of importance and urgency. But it certainly is one of our bottom lines here. A few weeks ago, we did the bottom line from 1 John. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God has not life. And when you just boil all down, that's the bottom line. You are either under the grace of God because you have the Son by faith, or you are not. So what creates urgency and importance about what we do here? It is this simple truth, that what we are doing here is the one thing that determines the destiny of the world and of our community, Northwest Indiana. And God has made the church the steward of the saving message of Jesus Christ. It is not a school, it is not a club, it is the church that Jesus died for. It is the church that Jesus is coming back for. This one reconciling message of life. Now, that said, we are here caring about all human suffering. We care about the poor, and we must. We care about uh, the, the, the socially disenfranchised, and we must. The Bible itself calls us to care for the widow and the orphan and human suffering on all kinds of levels. And we are here trying our very best to meet the temporal needs of people. And I could tell you more about that. But in the end, the suffering that we most care about is eternal suffering and eternal life. Whoever has the Son has life. Having Jesus is an exercise of our soul where by faith our trust, our dependence, our hope is not in my righteousness, me being a good person, 
uh, any of these other sort of false uh, doctrines, but in what Jesus did and who he is. My hope is in him. And when my trust is in him, he then is my Savior and my Lord. I begin a walk discipleship relationship with Jesus. And friends, realize this is it. There is no plan B. There's no workaround. There's no alternative. It is this one reality that determines everybody's destiny. And that ought to create urgency and priority for what we are doing here. Did you see the sad images this last week? Terrifying images of Afghans with the military plane rolling down the runway and to see the terror on their faces as they in their hearts believed this plane is my only hope out of here and to see them clinging to the wheel well and clinging to the wheels and anything that they could grab onto because they wanted to be saved from the Taliban and I would encourage us to continue to pray for Afghanistan but the point that I'm making here is that's what urgency looks like when all your hope for survival is in one thing. And in that sense, we are all here clinging to Jesus. We are clinging to the gospel. We are clinging to the one only thing that gets us out of this world of death and gives us life. And that ought to be done with urgency. And in the church, where this is our priority, this is the most important reality in the world. That's how Jesus looks at the church. He died for it. And that is why the bottom line is the gospel and gospel ministry and gospel work. And I'm urging us here not to over time get dulled somehow into sort of the monotony of the day-to-day -day or the week-to-week -week and to miss sight of the fact that Jesus is the one and only hope for the world and for Northwest Indiana and, by the way, for you and for me. As Jesus said, I will build my school. No, he didn't say school. I will build my missions agency. He didn't say mission agency. I will build my community thing. No, didn't say that. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that is the plane that we are clinging to. That is the truth that we are putting all of our hope and trust in. And this is what must motivate us as a congregation to treat what's going on here as really important, because it is. This is what motivates sharing the gospel with other people and serving in ministries of the church and giving, let's be honest, giving sums of money that our friends and family would be shocked at. Supporting God's work, praying diligently, and generally viewing what's going on in the church as the most important priority in my world. Because, biblically, and from the perspective of eternity, it is the most important thing. What survives this world? People, the word of God, the church, that's it. And that's the bottom line. Let's do this with the urgency that it requires.
and calls for. Amen? All right, bottom line number three. Let's err on the side of love. Okay? Let's err on the side of love. Now, this is something that if you get into the sort of behind the scenes around here, that, uh, that you might hear, because we've sort of said this over the years, uh, and, and, I, and I, I wanna promote it to you. Let's err on the side of love. Now, I'm gonna admit there's an internal inconsistency in that statement, because uh, it suggests the fact that the loving path is the path of error, and we would not hold to that. We also could easily take that as sort of cover for compromising on things, being unwilling to say the the hard truth that needs to be said, sort of softening down everything. We don't mean it that way at all. But the way that we mean it and the way that we generally apply it is that you have to realize that in a local church, there are a myriad of decisions and directions that do not rise to the Ten Commandment level. It's not like a thus saith the Lord. I wish we had more thus saith the Lord because it would be easier to know what to do around here at times. If I had the bat phone or whatever, I'd just call God and say, hey, (laughs) tell us what to do. (laughs) We're not sure what to do right now. Oftentimes, we're not sure what to do. You might think, oh, the leaders, they're, you know. Some of you assume that we have some direct line to God. Here's our direct line to God right here. We're trying to figure out, okay, how do we apply these truths to the situations of leadership in the church? Let's err on the side of love. This means that in wisdom-type leadership-level decisions, when things are murky regarding what we should do, let's lean towards the gracious. Let's lean towards the long-suffering. Let's lean towards... Love. Let's bend towards mercy and kindness. I say that because sometime in the future you might go, well, I wonder why they did that. It might be because we are trying to err on the side of love. Now, why would we do that? Because God definitely leaned towards grace in how he treated us, didn't he? Okay? And so for culturally for our church to kind of bend, lean if we're going to err, let's err on the, on the loving side versus the judgmental. And that's your third bottom line. Here's number four, if I'm counting correctly. Somebody nodding in the second row. I'm in good, good shape here. And I'm going to spend a little more time on this one. Keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. Do you know how many times I have said that as the pastor of this church? I don't either. A lot, okay? A lot. I have said this in so many contexts. I remember, just to give you an example, I remember back when, shortly after I came to the church, and I said, listen, I know we have the hymnal, but why don't we use an overhead projector? This is showing just how what a dinosaur I am here, okay? But let's use an overhead projector and let's project on a screen the lyrics of the songs that we're going to sing. Huge uproar about that. (laughs) 
What's my response? Can we keep the main thing the main thing around here? Are we all of a sudden all about overhead projector lyrics? Is that the big thing we're going to fight about now? We were able to get through that, as you can tell. As we relocated the church, you might think, oh, that's no big deal. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Our church had so many sacred cows mooing, we looked like Fair Oaks Dairy, okay? <laughs> what was I saying during that transition in principle? Can we keep the main thing the main thing around here? Some of you remember Y2K? That was a big thing, if you remember. We're all going to die. Because our clocks and toasters were not programmed to click to 2,000. What was my pastoral wisdom in that moment? Can we keep the main thing the main thing? I'm not going to preach on Y2K. We're going to stay focused on Jesus here. Shortly thereafter, 9-11. Some of you remember the huge, emotional, patriotic war cry, etc. all the things that happened at 9-11 and for years to come after that. Did we veer the church over in the direction of 9-11 stuff? What did I say? Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Can we keep the main thing the main thing here? Let's go multi-site. What? Can we keep the main thing the main thing? And try to expand the footprint of ministry in northwest Indiana? And I, I could go on with moments along the way. We've had tons of directional things that, you know, were challenges, were new, were different in some way. And what have we said repeatedly over and over and over again? Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Even most recently, we saw in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, our ancient brothers and sisters who struggled with keeping the main thing the main thing. And what did we see in Romans 14? In the eyes of God, not everything is as important as everything else. Not everything is a hill that we're looking to die on or that we should die on. Now, to be clear, what is the main thing for a Christian and for a church? The main thing, we start with God, the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. The gospel, specifically Jesus, but certainly the Father and the Spirit. And what I would say, the core doctrines of the Christian faith as passed down to us from the apostles. I would call that the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. If we give away on those things, we give away the farm. We've given away the church. We have given away the gospel. So why is it so important that Christians and a local church keep the main thing the main thing? Because, friends, there are constantly secondary things that are vying for the direction, the heart, the focus, and the affections of the church and the people of the church specifically. 
constantly. Now this is the thing that has to be the big thing. And frankly, I would say to you, this past year in particular has been a great and oftentimes sad revealer of the actual priorities of people's hearts. As the pandemic and politics and social unrest have bubbled to the surface, the priorities that have been latent and maybe silent or quiet in the hearts of people. We've learned what we really care about. I've talked with many pastors across the country. They all have the same thing to say. They all say, this past year, terrible. Oh, you know. It's sort of like therapeutic for pastors uh, when, we, when we cry on each other's shoulders. A year of rancor. Or to say it this way, a year of struggling to keep the main thing the main thing. Because Christians are strongly tempted to make non-gospel things for them the main thing. And one very powerful result when we keep the main thing the main thing is that God's people remain unified and in a local church remain on the heart level unified with one another Loving and fellowshipping, even, listen, even when there are disagreements about the secondary things. In fact, especially when there are differences on the secondary things. And I would submit to you that this is what mature Christianity ought to look like. Unified on the main things, able to disagree on the secondary things, but to love one another and go forward for Jesus' sake. Which is essentially what Ephesians 4 says. Let me read this to you. This is a picture of what a mature congregation looks like. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's mature Christianity. Okay? Now, I read a book this week that gets at what a church should be like when it has its priorities right. And he talks about the church as a fellowship of difference. Not difference, but D-I-F-E-R-E-N-T-S. A fellowship of different people and perspectives brought together in Jesus Christ. And he points out the fact that this is how it was from the beginning. And here's a very powerful example of this. Okay, so let's go back to the 12 disciples. Some of them, the famous one, Peter, James, and John, you're familiar with them. But if you go down the list, there's uh, more obscure disciples who teach us a very powerful lesson here. So let's talk about Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Okay, Matthew, famous Matthew, wrote the Gospel of Matthew. The Matthew who was sitting there, he was a tax collector at his table. Jesus said, follow me, and he left the table, and he followed he followed Jesus. 
This Matthew was essentially a government employee. He was a tax collector, which meant in that day that he participated in the corruption of the Roman tax system and collections. This is one reason that uh, the tax collectors were so hated is that everybody knew that they were cheating them and, and uh, charging them more taxes and lace in their back pocket. My, how things have changed. <laughs> so think about Matthew. Big government guy, high taxes guy. Corrupt. He worked for Rome. Rome. Bumper sticker on his car. Rome. Then you have Simon the Zealot. Now here's where this gets interesting. Because Simon the Zealot, get this, the Zealot part is in his name, okay? It's not his last name. The Zealot is, a, the Zealots were a sect in Israel at that time. These were the, this was like a, a underground group of individuals who opposed Rome. They were revolutionaries. They plotted violence against Rome as a way to get rid of Rome. They hated Rome. We would call them today terrorists. That's how the Romans viewed them. They were, they were terrorists. Now get this. Amongst the disciples, you have one guy who worked for the government, and you have another guy who was a revolutionary against the government, and there they are around the campfire together. Now, if I might characterize these two, I'm going to take a little liberty here. Matthew was an MSNBC-watching, big government-loving, political liberal. Simon the Zealot was a Fox News junkie who thought Ronald Reagan was liberal and may or may not have worn horns at the Capitol on January 6th. <laughs> and Jesus picking the 12 guys that are going to take the gospel, steward the gospel for the church, selects the liberal and the far-right radical. And says, you, you, you both are going to be here in my team. I note to you that neither of them betrayed Jesus, the one who did, we know famously, not either of them. Both of them died as martyrs for Jesus. They were as politically far apart as you could possibly be. But they were unified as followers of Jesus Christ. How did they do this? They kept the main thing, the main thing. The majesty, the message, the miracles, the man, Jesus, so enraptured their hearts that they were able to put these secondary things as secondary things and to keep Jesus and the gospel and the great commission as the main thing that united them together as brothers. Another example. Have you ever thought about the burial scene of Jesus? If you're a Christian, I'm sure that you have, but maybe not through this lens. Who buried Jesus? 
Well, we know that Nicodemus helped bury Jesus. Who was Nicodemus? Nicodemus was the educated class, the religious elite, the wealthy, the, you know, the, the, the white collar. This is, this is Nicodemus. Also burying Jesus, Mary Magdalene, the formerly demon-possessed woman. What sort of things do you think a demon-possessed woman does or has in her story if she had seven demons in her, as Scripture attests? And yet, despite one being the high in society and one being the lowly in society, together they buried Jesus, wrapping his body, preparing it with the spices and such that they had. They worked together, and they buried Jesus. How did they do that? They kept the main thing the main thing. Now, to share from this book, a little longer quote, bear with me. The reason we need to rediscover the church as a fellowship of difference is because we too easily uh, fall into the world's ideas about community. The world gives two options. One perspective asks us to celebrate diversity by prioritizing differences. A second perspective asks us to celebrate uniformity, a a room where people disagree with each other over politics or their view of the world feels wrong, even immoral. Both perspectives create community through exclusion. They're like fraternities or sororities which build community by creating an exclusive club. We don't know how to have a church where people can disagree about politics because we try not to associate with anyone who makes us uncomfortable. We don't know how to build a multi-ethnic church because we don't live multi-ethnic lives. When a church follows these patterns of the world, it does not get noticed by the world. Why? Because the members don't need the church for this kind of community. You can join a protest march or a political party if you want shared ideological zeal. The church gets noticed by the world or the church that gets noticed by the world, brings together people who don't normally associate. The tax collectors and the zealots, the sinners and the Pharisees. That's what made the early church so strange that some said it turned the world upside down. And friends, that's our vision for our church. Is is not a community where we agree on everything right down to the bottom, you know, the, the, the third, fourth, fifth degree. No. We are agreeing on Christ. We are agreeing on the gospel. We want a magnanimous church, a large-hearted church, not an immature church. I think about, you know, every middle school has that table at lunch, the, the cool girl's table, but what do you have to do to be at the cool girl's table? You gotta look exactly like the other girls. You gotta talk exactly like the other girls. You gotta agree with the other girls about everything that they say all the time. Or you're kicked out of the club. And we look at that and what do we say? That's so immature. And then look at churches. Look at churches. There is something, or should I say someone, who the higher we hold him, the greater we view him to be, 
the more loving we can be with people who disagree with us on secondary things. It is a low view of Christ that elevates the secondary things. It is a high view of Christ that pushes them way down the list. So may I ask, does Jesus transcend your politics so that you could actually fellowship with somebody who politically disagrees with you? Or is your view of Jesus too low for that? Does Jesus transcend your view on masks and vaccines so that you could fellowship with a Christian different than you? Pastor Steve, now you're stepping on our toes. Indeed I am. Does Jesus transcend your view on fill in the blank? Now, friends, listen, as long as we respect each other's right to have differences of opinion on the secondary matters, on a non-essential, and love each other anyway, now we look like those disciples, Matthew and Simon the Zealot. And that's the vision of the church. By keeping the main thing, the main thing. The opposite of this is tribalizing and finding people that agree with me on everything. I just wonder, how have we become so fragile? I go back to those girls at that table in middle school. They are so delicate. They're so fragile. Everything has to be exactly the same. Let's be mature. Now, I read something else I'm going to share with you. I read a lot, if you didn't know. (laughs) And I have so many things I wish I had time to share. But I read this, and I, I just think that this is spot on for the cause of much of the present challenges that the church faces. Excess time online largely forms Christians for the worse. The more time we spend in bias-confirming online bubbles, on curated feeds full of voices that radicalize us in various directions, the more our desires are shaped by what our online tribe loves, more than what God loves. Highly online Christians naturally start to grow less interested in things, such as scripture and church, that don't perfectly fit the narratives they ingest online, but in shunning the very things that can recenter them on solid ground, they become further entrenched in a self-deception spiral of their own digital making. Now, right now, I know many here are thinking this. That is so true for a lot of the people I know. (laughs) Young people, are you listening to this? Because you young people, you need to hear what Pastor Steve is saying right now. But me, I'm too right to be wrong. And friends, this is part of the challenging time that we face as a a church, as a a media-saturated congregation. And do you see what he was saying there? 
how it pushes us. And I think this is unintentional for the vast majority of us. But just unintentionally, it pushes us further and further into polarities. One reason we need to be sharpened by other people is that they also have the Holy Spirit. They also have Scripture. And their different perspective sharpens ours or polishes ours. And that's part of the beauty of the congregation. And friends, that is our vision here. It is diversity in unity. It's easy to love people exactly like us because they remind us so much of us. It's one reason we love our kids so much, or at least other people do. They look so much like me, me. They make me look good. But then all of a sudden, Simon the Zealot, Zealot is added to your small group. And you're like, who let this guy in here? Doesn't he know that our perspective on this is, you know, here? Or in walks, you know, Matthew, the liberal, into your ministry group. How do we remain united? It takes a gigantic Jesus. A massive Christological awe at the glory of Christ. The higher he is, the lower these other things are. And that is our goal. Magnanimous in non-essentials, unity and charity in gospel essentials. Please be wise enough, please church, to see the dangerous path of required uniformity on non-essential issues. And let us be a church that just like we did when we projected the lyrics on the overhead, with the overhead on the screen, let's keep the main thing the main thing, okay? And let's move forward. Finally, and this is going to shock you, bottom line, it's all about him. That was an amen and child talk right there. <laughs> At least one person is with me in the room. It's all about him. The ultimate bottom line for our church here is that we strive to be a God-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered church and fellowship for the glory of God in all things. Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory. That's Bethel Church, at least as we aspire to be. And what does this produce? It produces testimonies like this one shared at the baptism last Sunday night by a young woman named Brittany. She said this, Growing up, I always felt like something was missing, but I couldn't ever figure out what it was. I searched many paths, but always landed at a dead end. I made mistake after mistake. I wanted to feel whole and complete so badly that I ended up allowing myself to get scammed into a marriage in hopes that starting a family would complete, complete me. At 22 years old, in an abusive marriage, I felt more alone than ever. I started to dabble with doctors and medications. I felt better. I even landed myself a pretty awesome career out of nowhere. Things were finally falling into place, I thought to myself. Sadly, that couldn't be further from the truth. 
that I was living a double life as a functioning drug addict. I lost my job and all my insurance and savings, friendships were forgotten, and I put family at a distance. I, scared, I was scared to let anyone know my dark secrets. I was dependent on substances, and I was completely alone. My shame, guilt, and self-hatred consumed me. I was under 100 pounds, skin and bones, and full of anger and anxiety. I would scream at people. I wore dirty clothes every day, didn't shower. I couldn't focus on anything. I wasn't sure what was going to happen, whether I'd end up in jail, kill myself, or end up dead from the way that I was living my life. I would feel my chest for a heartbeat at times. I truly was afraid if I died and was in hell. From the bottom of my pit, I dug myself. I cried out again, sobbing to God, God, help me. God, change me. Give me a new life. I don't want to do this anymore. Oh, my God, someone help me. And I kept praying to God, even if it were just little whispers under my breath. I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. The old me was nailed to the cross with him. The floodgates opened. Me, the worst of them all, God our Father, the Almighty, chased down my sinful heart and washed me clean. Something I'd always been searching for was revealed to me and gifted to me in the most tangible way. He gave me a new life. The life I cried out, asking God for, he gave to me. And Brittany was one of 79 people that we baptized last Sunday night. And we just say, praise God, okay? Praise God. And Bethel, I want to urge us, let's keep our eye on the ball. God has brought us through many dangers, toils, and snares. He will not abandon us now. And Northwest Indiana needs churches who truly are all about him. And that's our bottom line. And that's your message today. Amen.